Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 again. Pastor Mark did a wonderful job last time of carrying us across nine all the way through 10 and giving us a great big picture understanding of how this chapter is so important in understanding who these chosen people of God are, um, how God has not uh, turned his back on the Jews and uh, and and instead has open arms for them and then is getting us into chapter 11. But I was uh, really struck by the first four verses of chapter 10 and in particular the opportunity to look at the idea of Christ alone uh, that I wanted us to just back up and zoom in uh, on those four verses. So uh, Pastor Mark covered uh, uh, probably 30 some verses last time um, and these were four of them uh, all that my, I'm going to try to do is four this time that should tell you about his ability versus mine um, so let's uh, let's look at Romans chapter 10 verse 1 through 4 brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them this is Paul writing and them is the Jews brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone Who believes? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great kindness and love. And we thank you that you've gathered us here. I'm thankful, Father, that uh, there are folks gathered in the name of Jesus in India today. And Father, we we pray uh, for the fruits of this uh, time in this village. We just pray, Father, that you would work as you see fit. Uh, Father, that your name would go forth. But Father, I I pray that the urgency of this text for us this morning, that it will fall on our hearts. I pray that we will see the great news of the gospel when we understand how grave the condition of our sin is. I pray, Father, that it would lead us to a deep desire like Paul had for his kinsmen. Father, like my friend in India has for his village, I pray also it would lead to us a deep desire for our family and friends who are living in danger. Father, I pray that it would lead us to evangelize, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a deep sense of love. Father, we pray for that. I pray that you would work among your people this morning as you see fit. Amen. Well, the uh, Reformation, and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of history on the Reformation right now. You're probably thankful for that. But the uh, Reformation was summed up um, uh, as five solas. It's the Latin phrase only, five alone statements, if you will. Um, In fact, if you've ever looked at our church logo, it's a cross and out of it's five petals. And those five petals, we came up with that for the five solas. And uh, I've listed there on your handout the five solas. I'm not going to go through all of them. I put in bold one of those. One of the five solas is solas 
Christos, which means, well, translating from the Latin would be to the English Christ alone. And this was the, uh, the Reformation called the church back to faith in Christ as the sole mediator between God and, and man. And it, the, the reason I emphasize that is I think this text is so helpful in helping us see that. In fact, one of the things I hope you're going to see is us connecting. So that's in the 1500s uh, with uh, that doctrine of sola Christus. And one of the major points of our own statement of faith, which actually would have come about in the 1700s uh, and now is still our statement today. I'm hoping by the time this is done, you'll see the connection there. So verse one, chapter 10, Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I know I've made this point multiple times, but obviously I think it bears repeating. This is an unusual statement. So imagine you ask me how my family is doing and I say to you, well, you know, I'm really glad you asked. Uh, it's my deep prayer. I'm earnestly scared and I want them to be saved. Now, if you subtract out the religious explanation from that statement, the only right response from you, if you care and are listening, is saved from what? Who? What is going on? Well, this is incredibly important. To understanding Christianity. It's very important. As you share the gospel with others. And these aren't. I'm not talking to strangers. I'm talking about as we talk to our family and friends. About the gospel. Paul is pleading. With God. On behalf of his fellow countrymen. His fellow Jews. He is pleading. That they might be saved. And all the while. They haven't the slightest sense of danger. That's what's going on here. God, save them, save them, save them. All the while, they're not even at all aware of the danger. So from what or from whom does Paul want his fellow countrymen to be saved? He defines that in chapter five. There Paul says, verse 9, chapter 5, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, follow this, much more shall we be saved, preposition, from Him, from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God. Paul makes it plain that we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Of God, And that should make the immediate question, well, what is the wrath of God? I think probably one of the best explanations that I've read on it is by an Anglican theologian named John Stott. He actually went to be with the Lord about eight or nine years ago. And he defined it in his book, The Cross of Christ. He defined it this way. God's wrath does not mean that he loses his temper. For no apparent reason at all. There's nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It's never unpredictable, but always predictable. Because it is 
provoked by evil and evil alone. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its form. So the wrath of God is his anger over evil. It is the right, just, perfectly measured, and always provoked response of anger of God concerning human sin. So you can understand verse 1 is Paul saying, the prayer of my heart is that my countrymen will be saved from God's anger towards them. That would be a paraphrase. If you get that, then the transition to verses 2 and 3 will make a lot more sense. The prayer of my heart is my countrymen will be saved from God's anger towards them. So let's look at 2 and 3, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. While Paul is praying that his countrymen will be saved from God, they are spending all their time ever more excited about God. They're like a toddler who is so excited and enthralled with his new toy. He wants everybody to see it. When his parents come out to look what all of the fuss and excitement is about, they are terrified to learn that he's playing with a king cobra. So Paul says in verse 2 that his fellow Jews are excited. They're zealous about God only because they are ignorant of God. They're excited about all things to do with God, his temple, all the laws, because they do not realize how dangerous God is to them. It is as if Paul is saying, get away, stop, run. That is not a toy. It is a cobra and it will destroy you. Or quit playing with God like you can control him. He is not. He is not safe for you. He continues this in verse 3. For, this is an explanation of that, why they're ignorant. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish it on their own. So Paul further explains the reason his countrymen are not afraid of God is because they don't know how righteous and how perfect God is and how unrighteous and how imperfect they are. He says that they are ignorant of God's rightness and they exaggerate their ability to control God by their own actions. But this is actually perfectly understandable. For a king cobra is actually not dangerous at all to a small child so long as the cobra doesn't strike. In fact, a king cobra can even be controlled by a child so long as the cobra doesn't strike. This is precisely why the Jews were fooled. They were small children playing with a king cobra. 
They had their rules. They had the regulations. They had their temple, their political structures and the pride of their heritage. They felt like all of this was more than adequate to make them right with God. But they should have known that he was dangerous to them. Just one text. There's, these are all over the Old Testament. I'm going to give you Ezekiel chapter 7. There, in Ezekiel chapter 7, God warns his people of his, of God's own ability to strike. Now I will soon pour out my, what? Wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all of your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then, then you will know, that's, that's the opposite of ignorance. Then you will know that I am Yahweh who Rikes. This is only one example. There are dozens of these all over the Old Testament. So why did they not heed the warning? Well, you can imagine warning a child about a cobra. Just in general terms. You must be careful with cobras. Anyone who's not extremely careful with a cobra could be gravely injured. That's the warning. You've expressed it to the child. You've explained the warning. But that warning is only effective so long as the child ex- understands the extreme danger of the cobra and, and shows caution when nearing it. You can also imagine this scenario. you got an ignorant child who begins to play with a cobra and actually plays with a cobra for a few days. And the cobra doesn't strike. The child begins to think, That while it might be true that the cobra could strike uncareful handlers, the fact that they have not been bitten must mean that they are a careful handler. The fact that they have not been bitten must mean that they are not in danger when they are near the cobra. This was a story of the Jewish people for whom Paul was writing. Even though God had given them the law, the Ten Commandments, in order to show them their inability to please God, even though God had warned them continuously about His wrath and His anger over their sin, even though He had even struck Israel multiple times in the past because of their sin, still they played with God as if they had Him perfectly under their control. Like a child who has heard of the dangers of a cobra, but never personally experienced its bite. The Jewish people ignored the cautions concerning the danger of God and continued to go near Him as if He were controllable. The patience, the love, the extreme forbearance of God, it didn't soften their hearts to His mercy. It inflated their pride concerning their ability and blinded them to the danger of God. And this leads directly to that final statement in verse 3. They did not submit to the righteousness or to God's righteousness. 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were ignorant. They did not know how perfect God is and how dangerous God was to them. They believed that they had God figured out and within their grasp, and therefore they failed to submit to Jesus, the Son of God. They failed to submit to God's righteousness. Instead of welcoming Jesus as the one to save them from the danger of God, they worked to rid themselves of Jesus instead. This actually makes perfect sense. Say a child begins playing with a cobra when he's, say, three years old. Now, let's say the child has kept the cobra for another ten years. He plays with the cobra. He feeds it, handles it on a regular basis. He even named the cobra, Cody the Cobra. In fact... He's sort of grown up with a reputation of his cobra-handling ways. He's, he's even had numerous articles written about him in the paper about how good he is at cobra-handling. Then one day, a knock comes at the door. There stands this man, complete stranger, and he says, I have heard you have a cobra in your house. Don't worry. Just trust me, I will rid you of the danger of this cobra. I will also make sure you're never in danger of the cobra again. Now, if that man knocks on my door, and I'm thinking if he knocks on your door, you, and tells you that he's there to rid you of a dangerous cobra in your house, and that he can promise the cobra will not return if you let him in, what are you and I going to do? Well, I can tell you what I'm going to do. Can't speak for you. I can tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk out and let him walk in. That's not how that kid is going to respond, though, is it? Not the kid with Cody the cobra. How's he going to respond? Well, he's going to tell the guy to take a hike. Huh? Are you talking about Cody? Ah, oh, have you not read about me? I'm not scared of Cody. I can bring Cody down here myself. Why don't you get off my property and find somebody who needs your cobra handling specialties? Because I got to be honest, you even being here, that could mess up my reputation. I got a reputation as being able to handle cobras myself. You coming in here saying I can't handle it, that's not good for me. Get out of here. I'm not scared of Cody. Cody, Cody loves me. That is exactly what happened when Jesus knocked on the door of the Jewish people. When he stood on their front door in Jerusalem, and he told them that he was there to make them right with God and save them from the dangers of God. They wanted him gone. He was messing with their reputation as those who had God within their grasp. All of that to drive to this major point. Every person's 
response to Jesus is always directly tied to their understanding of God's wrath and their ability to control it. You may say, but why do you say every person? I thought Paul was talking about the Jewish people. How is this a universal issue? That's a universal issue because God's wrath is universal. That is, as Paul made clear in Romans chapter 3, all men have sinned and fallen short of God's expectations. He clearly states the consequences of it in the opening chapter of the book. In chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they do what? They suppress the truth. They act ignorant. So long story short, God is extremely dangerous for sinners and all of us are sinners. So again, every person's response to Jesus is always directly tied to their understanding of God's wrath and their ability to control it. So why isn't? Why isn't the whole world turning to Jesus? Because most of the world believes their cobra is a pet and he's perfectly harmless. That is, most of the world, like the Jews in Paul's day, believe that while God might represent a danger to some, he represents no danger for them. And the biggest reason for this is simply because they have mistaken the forbearance and patience of God for their ability to manage Him. Why? Because He has never struck them. True, they have sinned. True, they have fallen short. But they're still breathing. Instead of every breath counting as the extreme mercy of God, it becomes a false assurance Of their false safety. And this explains two very important things that we have observed in churches over the centuries. First, we understand it's an amazing blessing from God for a child to be raised in a home that loves and promotes the gospel, not religion, but the gospel. The earlier a child hears of the danger of God given the child's own sin, the more likely they are to understand their need for a savior. Another way to say that. The earlier a child can fully trust in Jesus to save him from the wrath of sin, the wrath of God over their sin, the less likely he will be blinded into believing he has nothing to fear of God's judgment. That's the amazing blessing of a Christian home. Second, we understand the danger of religion, extreme danger of religion, that teaches there can be salvation outside of Jesus. It is so dangerous and satanic. It doesn't matter if it's Judaism or Mormonism, Islam, liberal Methodism, legalistic Baptist, charismatic Pentecostalism, Hindu, Seeker-sensitive, non-denominational, any religion that allows humans to feel right with God without fully relying on Jesus is unbelievably dangerous. All of them are dangerous for the exact same reason. 
They make people feel safe with God when they are in grave danger of his wrath. God will strike every sinner not covered by Jesus. So one may hear this. I think this would be a fair response following the cobra analogy and reply, you know what? I think probably the best thing to do is just stay away from God. I mean, that is, instead of spending so much time worried about cobras, perhaps you just stay away from cobras, avoid them. Well, that's actually not hard to do with cobras, especially in our area. We don't have that many cobras. Thank God. It'll never work with God. Why? God's everywhere all the time. (laughs) In fact, it's worse. It's actually much worse than you might think. Not only can God not be avoided, you can't help but want to be near him. (laughs) This is a human predicament. Each of us is made in the image of who? God, you have a stamp on you. By who? God, each of us is deeply drawn to God. Each of us wants fellowship and peace with God. Each of us will never be soul satisfied until when we are near God. No matter if you're an atheist or a jihadist, you want to be near God. And still, on our own, God is deeply dangerous. So the very place that our soul desperately wants to be near God is the most dangerous place for us. That's the human predicament. If you feel it, I just want to say it again. You feel that you are so ready for verse four. The human predicament is the very place that you want to be more than anywhere else is near God is the most dangerous place for us. Verse four. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 4 explains what it means to submit to God's righteousness. It means to fully trust in Jesus Christ as the one who can deal with the danger of God. Jesus upholds the demands of God's law and allows us to live where we were created to live, near in close proximity with God. It means Jesus knocks on our door and he promises that he and he alone will make us right with God so that we can enjoy life with God. So Christians are those who believe, one, that they need to be saved from the wrath of God. And two, Jesus is the only way they can be saved from the wrath of God. And Paul makes this plain in chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be what? Saved. Notice that we are not saved by our confession. We are not saved by even the belief in our heart. Again, compare it to when the man knocks on the door and tells me that he's there to rid me of the cobra. My saying, yes, come in and believing he's going to do it. That does not get the cobra out of the house. No, what gets the cobra out of the house? 
the cobra fighting man does it. My confession and belief, they're just what let him in. Christians are not saved by the wrath of God by praying a prayer or signing a form. We are saved from God's wrath by Jesus Christ alone. You can see this all so perfectly in our statement of faith. Article 4, statement of faith. Here's what it covers. Just listen. This is in our statement of faith. Of the way of salvation. We could rephrase it. How are we saved? So you want to know, what do we as a church believe as to how we are saved? Here it is. We believe that salvation of sinners is by grace alone. Mediated by the work of God, the son who (laughs) by the appointment of the father freely took upon himself our nature yet without sin honored the divine law by his obedience and by his death fully atoned for our sins and that having risen from the dead he is now enthroned in heaven and uniting in his wonderful passion the tenderest sympathies with those divine perfections which he has eternally enjoyed he is in every way a suitable a compassionate and a sufficient Savior. So there in our statement of faith, where this is where we as a church have decided, confirmed together, how it is we believe we are saved. We are not mentioned at all. Not once. Let that settle. When we describe how we believe we are saved, we, us, we're not mentioned any. This is so Christian. We are saved by who? Jesus. He rids us of God's wrath. He gives us the opportunity to be right with God again. He lives the perfect life. He dies as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He is raised victorious over our sin. Our statement of faith enumerates 11 things that Jesus did to secure our salvation. And not one stinking thing that we did. That is Christian. We do nothing to contribute to our salvation. Jesus alone saves us. What do we do? We submit to the righteousness of God. Knock, knock. I'll get the cobras out. Sure thing. You do it. That's it. Imagine me going on the news trying to explain my part in that. Well, he knocked on my door. I opened it. Right? I mean, that would be a trip. I said yes. The guy at the news thing's be like, and what did he do? And what did he do? Did he go upstairs? Did he find it? Did he he fight with it? They don't care what I did. I just opened the door. That's us. Jesus is the one who saves us. All we do is that we agree with God that God is so holy that we need help and we trust that Jesus can fully help. God's grace starts by showing us how major a problem we have. And then we see that only a major solution will do. That is, there are not numerous Google search results for steps to get rid of cobras from your home. In the same way, there's just not a lot of results for steps to follow when your plane is crashing. Or what to do when your car is headed off a cliff. Or steps to follow when you're being robbed at gunpoint. Right? That just is not going to happen. 
It's actually funny. When I was writing this, I was thinking about uh, I, I, in high school, I worked for a drugstore for a little while and they had us go do training and we had to sign down through central office all these forms. And uh, we got to one point and the lady was walking me through the form and she says, uh, you just need to sign here. I was trying to read it. Uh, it talked about what happens when the store gets robbed. And um, I had to sign something about what I would do. And, and uh, I finally said, I'm sorry, I'm kind of confused. What is this? What am I signing? She says, well, you're just signing that if somebody comes in and, you know, points a gun, asks you for the cash drawer, that you just give them the cash drawer. That you won't fight. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. I just want, you're asking me to sign that I will not fight? And she said, yeah, we need you to sign that. So you're asking me to sign that I'll just give them the cash. She was like, yeah. Oh, no problem. I will sign that in a hurry. There's no hero gene here. I will sign it. I'll give them the cash. I'll give them more than the cash drawer. They need a soda, a snicker bar. I'll help them out. I couldn't understand it, right? No, there's nothing you can do. I remember thinking if my friend Joe comes for a job here, y'all might want to get him to sign the form. That brother jumped the counter. But not me. Uh-uh. Y'all can have it. That is yours. Well, why don't we have any steps to follow in situations like that? It's because in those situations, the problem's so big, there's nothing you can do. You're helpless. You're stuck. This is so major. What salvation have when God, when the gospel comes, we see the magnitude of our sin problem. We see how the life, death and reign of Jesus is the only suitable solution. We will not seek steps to solve the problem or help Jesus solve the problem. We turn to him for help. That's all we can do. So we are saved when God is gracious enough to show us how holy he is and how incapable we are. Then we turn to Jesus to save us. And his grace begins when we see the problem and it continues when we trust him to be the solution. So the good news is that God saves us from his wrath by his son. And those who are saved submit themselves to Jesus. They depend on Jesus. But this is actually where my cobra analogy sort of breaks down. For my analogy, there's a cobra. The cobra fighting man knocks on the door. He comes in, he removes the cobra, and he leaves. That's not the same as us trusting in Jesus. If Jesus comes in only for a day, then leaves, we're all toast. A better analogy might be us understanding Jesus is our ongoing treatment for a chronic disease. Like an insulin dependent diabetic is fully incapable of producing insulin on his or her own. They what has to happen? You have to depend on continuous injections of insulin. So we are incapable of life on our own outside of Jesus, not even for a moment. It helps in some ways. I think it's helpful to think of Jesus as a substance in this regard. Yeah, he's a person, but unlike any other person we know, he provides a reality to our existence that's akin to a substance. We need Jesus for life. That's what he is. He's life to us. All right, I'm calling an audible here. Um, I had a different conclusion to this, but as I was 
reading back through it this morning, I decided something different. So you have my original conclusion on your paper. So if you want to look at that, you can look at it later. Um, uh, you're probably going to find out why I do manuscript now. But I think, I think the better way of understanding how is it that we submit to the righteousness of God, which is another way of saying how is it we submit to Jesus is to continue with that analogy of the insulin-dependent diabetic. So if you're an insulin-dependent diabetic, you've got to have insulin all the time or you're in big trouble. That's where the Christian is when we submit to Jesus. We have to have Jesus all the time or we're in big trouble. Now, this is where my analogy, this is the second analogy I've walked you through. If you're like, I'm so lost. We got cobras and diabetics and insulin. I don't know who's striking who. Um, this is where the insulin analogy breaks down, though. So one of the things that you, you would hear from your doctor is you would hear, now, I want you to take your insulin, but you also need to watch your diet, exercise, be careful with your stress, try to... You know, be careful with your health so that you don't get too many infections. All those things will also affect your blood sugar. So you use the insulin, but you also use these other things. See, it's, it's funny. If you think about the Christian life, we actually treat Jesus like that a lot of times. We actually treat Jesus like he's our insulin, but we got these other things we also need to use. We need Jesus doing a little bit of stuff over here, but we also need to have, you know, some prayer, some Bible reading, some church attendance. We need those things that also we work with Jesus when we do these things. I'm telling you, if that's how you understand Christianity, it is unbiblical and it will never work. Those things are means to get the insulin. You come to church to get Jesus. You go to the scriptures to get more Jesus. You pray to submit your heart to Jesus. You're around other Christians for Jesus. I mean, this is actually seen in the Lord's Supper. What do we do? Do we all Lord's Supper? Is this what it is for us? Do we all stand up here and look at pictures and go, yes, now that's that's the Jesus that we love. No, that's not what we do. What did Jesus do? He didn't tell us to look at pictures. He didn't tell us to have thought experience. He didn't tell us to meditate. He didn't give us aromas to smell. What did he do? Take this and do what with it? Eat it. Ingest it. Imbibe it. Eat it and drink it. Why? Because you need Jesus. That's why we come to church. That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bibles. It's because we need our Savior. Not once. We need Him over and over and over. And then one day, it's going to end with a blood transfusion. You're not going to have a problem anymore. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is going to be in your bloodstream all the time. He'll hold you together perfectly. And you will finally be made new. He isn't just the means to our salvation. He is our salvation. 